Our scripture this morning is Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we know it very well. I've been uh, re-memorizing a lot of scripture because I used to, for a number of years, use the New King James Bible. Uh, it was one of my favorite, uh, and also uh, just because of the particular Bible I had was very much evangelical in its commentary. Uh, but the last year or so, I've moved toward the ESV, English Standard Version, which is a very accurate, uh, beautiful translation as well. And uh, so I've been trying to re-memorize a lot of scriptures that I memorized in the New King James. And so in any case, here we are in Acts chapter 2, one that we know very well, verses 1 through 4. And we read that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where these believers were gathered together, where they were sitting. And tongues of fire, as of fire rather, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This morning, if you're visiting for the first time, we're continuing in a series that we've called People of the Spirit. What that very simply means is we shared last week, we're talking about what it means to be people in whom the Spirit of God dwells or followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit would live within us. He would come and make his home in us. And what he's basically saying by that, he says, I'm not starting a new religion. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to give you new rules, a new religion with some quaint ideas and, and wish you the best and try in your own strength to keep all the rules. No, he said, what I've done is I've made a way for God to actually dwell in you, for you to be reconciled with your creator, to have intimate communion with him, to love him, to know his love for you, and to enjoy him. And so he says, I will come and I will dwell by my Holy Spirit in you. That's what we mean by people of the Spirit. And what I want to talk about this morning, we read uh, Acts chapter 2, which um, is a record of some of the happenings in the early church. And one of the things you'll notice if you read the book of Acts, because we forget sometimes looking backward toward history, that for these new believers in the early church, everything they experienced, it was new. They had not done it before, they had not seen it before, they had not experienced before. And so to me, if there's one thing that characterized people of the Spirit, or people who are Spirit-filled, is that it is a life of constant newness. It's a life of constant stretching and maturing. A walk with Jesus Christ, the Spirit-filled life. Friends, there is nothing stale about it. There's nothing predictable about it. Yet when you talk to uh, some people about life in the Spirit, a lot of folks don't know the difference between what is new and what is novel. But there's a big difference. When we talk about novelty, we're talking about something that, that in a, has an aspect of newness to it, but it's a kind of newness that just thrills or impresses for the moment. But eventually it trickles away, it fades away. Uh, we, we talk about something being novel, or we buy a novelty. We're talking about a, you know, a cheap little trinket, uh, something like a souvenir, something that's, oh, isn't that cool? I'll always remember this trip. And then it collects dust somewhere in a drawer, or maybe some toy. We, we talk about novelty, like Christmas toys. You know, you play for it for a while, and then it's gone. That's novelty. But when we talk about newness, we're talking about the kind of things that God wants to do in all of our lives that he wants all of us to experience. We're talking about things that refresh things that restore, things that are lasting and fulfilling. God wants to do things in us by his Holy Spirit that are always inspiring us, 
always bringing new life, freshness, like we touched on last week. To be an enthused person literally means in the Greek language from which we get that word, it means to be infused with God. It means to be a person who receives revelation of the Holy Spirit. To be an enthusiastic person is somebody simply in whom God dwells. And if God dwells in us, then of course he is always doing new things. Now, there are many Christians who seem to think that be, to be spirit-filled is just to be kind of excitable. You know, those Pentecostals or those spirit-filled people, whatever, in whatever denomination it may be, well, they're just kind of frothy. They're, they're just superficial. But that's not so. Because to be spirit-filled means to be filled with God's creative power. It means to be filled with a sense of expectation for new things and sometimes even for impossibilities. Because there's nothing frothy or superficial about the new things that God wants to do in your life. There's nothing superficial about the new things that God wants to do through your life to touch those around you. Peter said in Acts chapter 2 that the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that sense of expectation that he brings, he says in verse, um, verse 39, he says, this is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And what that means is that every single person who names the name of Jesus Christ, who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ, Peter says that for you the promise is the same. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit. You will be filled with this sense of expectation. Well, how can I say that? Because Peter says it's for everyone whom the Father calls. And how many of us understand that no one comes to the Father unless he's called, right? Every one of us who name Christ as our Savior Jesus says this promise is for you. So when I talk about newness, I'm talking about the kind of refreshing, as we sing about, that God brings into our lives. I'm talking about a newness that washes away the oldness. I'm talking about a newness that shakes us free from becoming fixated in only one way to live our life. This staleness that's fixated in only one way of believing in God and how he chooses to work in our lives. I'm talking about the staleness that has God figured out. Let me suggest to you, if you've got God figured out, he's not God. If you've got God figured out, you don't know God. Because if you know God, there's one thing you know, and what is that? Can't figure him out, right? My thoughts are a whole lot higher than yours. That's why it's called Revelation. You think you got it all together? I remember an old movie, it was two pool sharks, and there was Paul Newman and some other, oh, it was Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise was kind of the you know, young upstart, and, and Paul Newman had taken him under his wing and, and showed him a whole bunch of stuff. And there came a point where Tom was pretty good, and, and he got pretty cocky, and he thought he could take, you know, put one over on his mentor, that he could actually beat him. But he was so frustrated because he couldn't, he couldn't beat uh, this man, Paul Newman, who was, who was his mentor. And Paul Newman had a very simple word of advice, a little, little word of wisdom. He said, listen, son, he said, I've taught you everything you know, but I haven't taught you everything I know. You see, we got to understand our walk with Jesus Christ. It's one thing if you think you've got everything figured out, but you've got to realize you don't know everything he knows. And there's a whole lot of new things that he wants to show you and teach you if you allow him. But the tendency for many believers today is just to be stuck in this belief system of what they think about God. And I think the majority of Christians do that today. The majority of Christians today, I really believe they look at themselves as solid, as dependable believers. And I have no problem with that. But the warning is this, don't be so solid in your faith that you're not flexible anymore, that you can't be stretched, 
Because if you're that way, I don't believe you're the follower Jesus intends you to be. The Bible says that on the day of Pentecost, that those who were gathered together, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began. What does that mean? It means that for those of us who are filled with the Holy Spirit, the one thing that should characterize our lives is that we have entered into a life of new beginning. We have entered into a life of experiencing things that we haven't experienced before, of understanding things that we haven't understood before. It's a life of constant newness. For starters, we see in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit appeared to them in cloven tongues or divided tongues of fire and settled upon each of them. You know what? They had never experienced that before. That was new to them. And then right after that, they were all baptized with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. And that had never happened before either. These were new things. But they weren't new for the sake of novelty. They're new because God is a creator and God is always doing new things. If you know Jesus Christ this morning and you're filled with the Spirit, then please understand this, that you are expected to remain flexible. You are expected to remain open to new things. It's great to be a faithful believer, but if you're no longer expectant, then what you have done is you have allowed a socially acceptable kind of spirituality to replace that childlike enthusiasm and expectation that Jesus says is to characterize people of the Spirit. You may have noticed on Facebook this last few weeks, but Johnny and Priscilla, they have a baby shower today. We're going out to Johnny's for some reason. I guess he had a part to play in this, and we're going to give him some diapers and have a barbecue and a great time. Ladies are sticking around for a party upstairs. They're expecting, only if you've noticed, but Priscilla, what, what three months along? I think she might be doing a couple of weeks. But for those of us who have children, how many of us would say to Johnny and Priscilla that there's some changes coming? <laughs> wonderful changes, right? Some things are going to stretch you a bit, but they're wonderful changes. Before them, they have this whole life of firsts that they're going to experience. You know, for the first time, not sleeping for six weeks in a row. For the first time, I can remember when Ben was born, he was calling for like, it must have been six months, and trying to help Vanessa going to work, it was just zombie land for months. But it was worth it. All these firsts. Now, someone could look at Johnny and Priscilla and say, well, hey, they're in their mid-20s or whatever. I mean, they've lived a long time. You know, they got life figured out. They know what life's all about. Right? We can think that, but we understand that there's, they're coming into something new. A new life is actually coming into their home, into their relationship, a life that's going to gloriously change their life as they know it, that's going to grow them in wonderful ways that they could not grow otherwise. God's going to show them things, reveal the things to them about his father's heart and his relationship with them, wonderful things. Their life is now headed for just one first after the other. And friends, if we are followers of Jesus Christ and the life of his spirit lives in us and his life has come into our world, come into our home, come into our workplace, wherever we may go, the life of Christ is in us, you better believe you are in store for a whole lot of new things, for a whole lot of firsts if Jesus Christ truly dwells in you. Spirit-filled people are flexible people. That's what the early believers were in the book of Acts. 
They were always open to new things, and for two reasons. Number one, because Jesus promised it. Number two, because obedience to God requires it. Jesus promised it. He said to the disciples in John 14, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. And of course, Jesus was referring to the fact that when he sends his Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit who lived in Jesus without measure, that same Holy Spirit is going to live in all of his followers without measure, in overflowing. And he said, because of that, you are going to see a greater number of things that I've done happen through you, and you're also going to see a greater variety of things happening in and through your life than you witnessed in my own life because there's going to be millions of you around the world. At least that's how I interpret it. And by miracle, I believe Jesus is talking simply about any intervention of God into human affairs. But I want us to understand this morning, the purpose of a miracle is as a sign of God's presence that should produce a sense of awe because it is proof that God is not only present, but God is actually working where you are. And that ought to amaze you. It ought to amaze us on a Sunday morning when we come and we worship and we don't just sing nice songs or be moved by nice music, but we literally sense the presence of Jesus, of his Holy Spirit moving around us and through us. That ought to excite us. There ought to be a sense of awe. And that's why perhaps if you're visiting this morning, you might see somebody during the worship time who comes and bows at the altar or they kneel where they are in the aisle or in the pew. What are they doing? They're not putting on a show. They're just simply struck by awe at the presence of God, that he's so real and he's so wonderful and we worship him and we surrender to him and we give him all that we are and we prostrate ourselves before him because we say, Lord, we worship you as sovereign God. We recognize who you are and we gladly lay our lives before you. That's what worship's all about. But again, it's not just for the purpose of feelings. That awe is there because we recognize God is where I am. A couple of weeks ago, we may have shared this story. I think Jason alluded to it for those who were at the conference. A couple of weeks ago, a few of us were at a restaurant. We had a chance to pray with a couple of people at another table. And the Lord was so gracious to point out some ailments in their body, and the Lord healed a man's shoulder, and he healed his girlfriend's back, and then a few minutes later went outside and gave their lives to Christ in the parking lot. Just wonderful uh, ministry by the Holy Spirit. What's really interesting is how these coincidences work out. Uh, because these people weren't church people, but we come to find out that actually the man knew somebody who used to attend our church, and the couple moved away, but they used to attend the church. And I actually got an email, or a text rather, from uh, the Christian man who said, uh, were you praying with some guy that I happened to work with last week? And this is in a summation what he said in this text. He said, speaking of this man whom God touched and gave his heart to the Lord, he said, he is still in confused amazement that he is pain-free. You see, that's the purpose of the presence of God to create this sense of awe in the knowledge that not only is God present, but he actually cares about me. That's why God wants to touch people through us. That's why he wants to manifest his presence and power through us because there's a whole lot of people around the world today who believe there's a God, but they don't believe he has their address. They, don't, they know he's loving and he cares, but they don't believe he cares about me. And so God wants to use you to touch them so that they know not only is God present, but he's working on my behalf. There's that kind of sense of confused amazement. 
that opens the door for a person to respond to the love of God and to give their lives to Christ. That's the whole purpose for the miraculous. It's not for the purpose of entertainment. In fact, there's probably nothing more disappointing to God than in so many of our churches today where miracles do take place. You may say, well, Pastor, what do you mean miracles? I don't see miracles. Yes, you do. You see people coming to Christ, being saved from sin. That's a miracle. You see people being baptized with the Holy Spirit, overflowing and speaking in other tongues. That's a miracle. Amen? You see people being healed. You see people being delivered. Those things are miraculous. But the problem is in the body of Christ many times is we either view those things as entertainment or we kind of grow accustomed to them so that when we go home, we kind of say, well, wasn't that neat? And I wouldn't be surprised that those immature attitudes, probably more than anything else, really hinder the grace of God that he wants to manifest even a greater way in the midst of his people. I think we North Americans have become so desensitized by the pleasures and amusements that constantly bombard our lives, the television, the special effects, the CGA, whatever they call it, I can't remember what it's called now, the movies and all the special effects, that when we see God do something miraculous, we miss the whole point. We miss the point that God is here and he's shown us he's here, but he's here to redeem and he's here to restore lives and he's here to refresh his people. Jesus did say, greater works than these will you do. And I believe that we are not living as people of the Spirit unless we are doing so with understanding that Jesus can do whatever he wants and he can do it any time that he pleases. Amen? And he will do it when he finds a people who in their midst, they say, Lord, do a new thing. Do a new thing in me. Do a new thing in our midst. And I will be part of lining up my life and my heart that you might be able to do those things. How many want to be that kind of person? Yeah, Lord, do new things. Not for the sake of novelty, not for the sake of entertainment, but Lord, do something new because that's who you are. You need to stretch us and grow us. You need to save and touch and redeem those around us. Now, I know that what I'm about to say and when I say that, Vanessa gets really nervous. But I know I run the risk of either being misquoted or being misunderstood. But when you serve a God who is constantly doing new things, there will be times when you will not necessarily find Scripture and verse for every new thing God does. Does that make sense? There will be, I know you're cautious. I don't want to commit yet. Where are you going with this, Pastor? You see, we believe the Word of God is the final authority in all things. We believe the Word of God is the truth of, God's, of God that we check all things against. But there are some things that God does that you don't necessarily find verse for verse in the Scriptures, right? But we use the Word of God to discern whether or not these are the kinds of things that God would do. Does that make sense? And so the Word of God is still our authority. You may not just find word for word an example in the Scripture. And there are people who have a theology that demands that nothing can happen that has not already been recorded word for word in the Bible. And the problem with that is that God get bo gets boxed in to not be able to do anything new. 
that person, as sincere as they may be, never really experiences any new dimensions of God's fullness or the manifestation of His Spirit because according to them, He can only do this, what they're comfortable with, what they've read about. Even though what they've read about, they still don't expect in their day. You see, it kind of becomes this protectionism where it's under the mask of good theology, you're basically boxing God in and say, oh God, I believe you did that. And I believe you can do it. You just ain't doing it here. Because that requires that I stretch, that I change, that I grow. If you talk to some of the old timers back years ago, back with the days when they lived in isolated communities, they can tell you lots of stories of the miraculous. Many of them, of course, grew up uh, having never met a doctor, never met a dentist until probably they were teenagers. My poor mother, when she was six years old, the dentist would come once around once a year. And he got her down on the floor, and anywhere he saw a little black dot, he pulled the teeth out. She lost eight teeth in one day. Yeah, suffered for it for years. So a lot of folks didn't want to see the dentist back in those days. But you never, you never saw a dentist, never saw a doctor. And you ask those people from those days what they did in the case of an emergency, and what will they tell you? They'll say, we prayed. Right? We prayed. Vanessa and I had the pleasure of pastoring one congregation with this lovely, godly woman. She was a church historian. She's still alive today. And I used to go visit her just to hear the stories. And she told of a time there was a season of seven years in their church, a season of seven years back in the late 40s, early 50s, where every single person from the community, in a community of about 1,200 people, every single person from the community that was brought to the church for healing was healed. For a period of seven years, every sick person that was brought was healed. She also told of another occasion where there was this one man they prayed for. He came to the service. He had a crater in his tooth. I mean, his tooth was destroyed from the, from the cavity. It was into his jaw. He had a great deal of pain. Now, they didn't pray, Lord, please fill his tooth. They prayed, Lord, please heal him. And the pain left. He went home, and he says when he woke up in the morning, the pain was completely gone. He looked in the mirror, and he saw his tooth had been filled. Now, I know somebody's bound to be thinking, Paul, you don't really believe in that stuff, do you? I'll tell you what I don't believe in. I don't believe in not believing that God can do anything. That's what I don't believe in. Because God can do anything. You don't just conjure up a filling in your tooth. In fact, it was years later when the man was getting all of his teeth removed. He, w he went to a dentist by that time, you know, 20 years had passed or whatever. And so he went to a dentist to get fitted for dentures. And when the, when the dentist went to take out that tooth, he saw the filling, and he asked the man what, where that came from. And so the man, feeling a little bit sheepish, he shared his story. And the dentist says, I have to believe you because I've never seen this before. I don't know what it is. And this is going to sound crazy, but this is what she said. He said, all I can tell you is that it's, 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 it's made of, a, of an element that all I can compare it to, it'd be, it'd be like something you would find in a meteorite. It's that dense, it's that hard. The dentist actually used these words. He said, it's almost like, he said, it's almost like stardust. Isn't that interesting? And again, the gentleman shared with him exactly what had happened. Well, again, somebody's going to be thinking, well, Paul... There is no scripture basis for believing that God will fill a tooth. I actually found one. 
Psalm 81.10, read it with me. Open your mouth wide. Let's pray. Now, I'm just being facetious. I know that's not exactly what that scripture means, and I'll pretend to build a theology on it. But if you're looking for a verse in the Bible that says God will fill your teeth, you're not going to find it if you're looking for a verse that word for word says God fills teeth. But you know what you will find in the Bible? From the very lips of Jesus himself, he said, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works will he do. The purpose of that illustration is not to preoccupy us with the unusual or with filling teeth. The purpose is to simply ask ourselves, what kind of faith do I have? What kind of belief system do I have? What am I facing that requires me to decide whether or not I'm going to believe God for new things beyond anything I've ever experienced before? Or whether I'm just going to stay stuck in my theology where I'm safe, maybe unimpressed, unimpassioned, but I'm safe? Or am I going to believe that my God is a God of unlimited creative possibilities? And all he's asking is that if he lives in me, that I would allow him to do what he wants to do in me. That I would be flexible. Amen? That I would be shapeable. That I would be open to new things. Not for novelty's sake, but because God is a God of new things. And finally and quickly, the second reason people of the Spirit need to remain flexible to new things is because our obedience to God requires it. The early church, if you read the account of the early church, it's not just nice stories. What you're reading is about early believers who learned to expect new things. They were surprised but they weren't surprised because they understood the God they served. They understood what it meant to be filled with this love and this faith and this presence of God and a wonder of God, and they just weren't surprised anymore. They actually expected God to show up in impossible situations. Peter's a man who walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 10, he's praying, and the Lord shows him a vision of these different animals that no good Jewish boy was ever going to touch. And yet, the Lord says to him, Peter, rise up, kill, and eat. Peter's first reaction is, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice says this, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happens three times. Peter's absolutely dumbfounded. He's confused, doesn't know what it means. Then there comes a knock to the door. There's some men downstairs outside the gate, and they request that Peter would come to the house of their master, who is a Gentile, a God-fearing Gentile, a non-Jew, because at this point, even the disciples did not share the gospel with anybody who were not Jews. Even though Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Even though Jesus said, whoever believes shall have everlasting life. They had this mindset, it was just to the Jews. And so Peter goes, he follows him because the Lord uh, tells Peter, follow this man, there's something I want you to do. He goes to the man's house, his name is Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and he explains to him the way of salvation. The entire household and all the servants, they give their lives to Christ, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in new tongues. 
So Peter goes back to his Gentile or his Jewish disciples and friends. He tells them what has taken place. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 11, in verse 18, that when they heard these things, they fell silent. Now imagine this. The glorious gospel that they heard, walking with Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, they actually thought it was just for them. They're this tiny little population in the middle of nowhere, and this is all just for us Jews. That's how they understood it. They couldn't understand, they couldn't grasp how God would save non-Jews. And not only save them, he'd fill them with the Holy Spirit, and they would experience the same thing they experienced. It blew them away. When they heard what God had done, they stopped their arguing, and they marveled what these people had experienced. I want you to understand this. Peter is a spirit-filled man in love with Jesus Christ. But something happens. Peter has to be brought face-to-face with his prejudice, face-to-face with his own pride. But because he's open to being stretched, and this is key, because Peter has a heart that understands who God is, that understands that he may have some limitations. He may be as sincere as he is in all these experiences. He still may be backward in some things. He's not moving what God is moving in. Because Peter has a heart that is shapeable, no matter what he's experienced, the Holy Spirit is able to seep into these other areas of his thinking and of his experience and of his life and begin to overflow him there as well and to teach him some new things and to experience some new things and destroy those racial religious barriers. And friends, I believe in the same way the Holy Spirit, he wants to break through the hardened layers of our traditions. He wants to confront our pride. You may say, Pastor, I'm not proud. Oh yeah, you are. You reek with it. If you're ever at a place that you can look into the face of the eternal God and say, I'm good. If you can ever come in the presence of the Lord and say, Lord, I've, had, I've got enough. I'm good. I'll see you in heaven one day. You took care of me. I'm good. That's stinking pride. Friends, we've been wired by the Holy Spirit for our spirit, like we sang earlier this morning. You know, I just, I yearn for the presence of the Lord. Oh, Lord, I yearn for you. New things, who you are, new revelation. Lord, it's based upon your word, but Lord, I want to just not know your word. I want to experience your word. I don't want to just know about you. I want to experience you. I want to be in love with you. I want to be in passion for you. When I wake up in the morning, I want my day to be about you. We all have pride. We all have prejudice. We all have traditions in our minds and our lifestyles. And those things end up separating us from people. And they separate us from people groups that God wants us to touch, whether it's in the church or in our community. You know, you take this glass and you can fill it with water. But you can only fill it so much. doesn't matter how much water you pour in, it's only going to go this high, then it's going to overflow. And the reason is this particular glass is made of an element that is not stretchable, right? It's not stretchable. It's hard. And so you can fill it and fill it and fill it, but it's never going to be able to contain more than it's always contained. It's made of glass. And I think in the same way, that is how many believers see themselves. But I want us to understand this morning, that friends, that God has not made us to forever stay the same size in our soul. He wants to stretch us 
to contain more and more of Him as the Holy Spirit seeps into every area of our life and our thoughts. And it begins to overflow those areas too. The more I grow, the more room there should be for the fullness of God in me. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 4, that this process should be ongoing for every believer, he says, until we all attain the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's not one of us here this morning that doesn't struggle with limiting ourselves. There's not one of us here. I don't care how full of the Spirit you are or how long you've walked with God. There's not one of us that doesn't struggle with becoming dependent on a certain belief system or or dependent on certain ministry talents or, or certain ways of thinking, certain techniques to the point where we start to actually trust in our ability to function in what we know rather than trusting in God's ability to work even more powerfully through us in ways that we've yet to experience. We all struggle with that, friends. There's not one of us that does not experience something in God and our flesh, our human nature is, is to box that into some aspect of theology, compartmentalize God in some way so I can still neatly order my life. Well, that was really cool, Lord. Thank you. That was a new insight. That was inspiring this morning. But you know what? That's kind of where it goes. Because if I really open myself up to you, if I really open myself up to what this means, this truth that you've shown me, this experience that I've had, this thing that you've done for me to give me a taste of what new things you still want to do, if I open myself up to that, then I've got to stretch. I've got to change. I've got to grow. And that's not always easy, especially if we have our lives mapped out, especially if we've learned to believe the devil's lie that nothing new happens in me. Nothing new happens in me. I get to tell you, friends, I've been a pastor for some 35 years now. But I'm still a student. I'm still a student, not just of God's Word. I'm a student of what God is doing in the body. I'm a student of what God is doing in these last days. Because as the pastor, part of my responsibility is not just to keep the sheep safe. It's to lead the sheep to new plateaus. It's to lead the sheep to new things in Christ. It is to combat the enemy who would come to us and say, hey, nothing more is going to happen. Don't expect anything else. When the Lord is saying, I've got new pastures, I've got new things, I've got new experiences, I've got a mission for you as believers and for a church, there's yet things you've not seen that you can't imagine that I have for you. And as to say, Lord, whatever it takes, lead us into it. Lead us into it. The mandate's bigger than us, and we need to be open to a big God. Every time you and I come to a place where that voice whispers in our ear, this is as far as you go, it stops here. That's the place where we have a decision to make. We have to decide whether or not we're going to be unstretchable, like that glass, or whether we're going to be a person whom God can expand and make more room for more that he wants to do. That's a fundamental decision. There's not one of us, myself included, that on somewhat of a daily basis doesn't have to make that decision. When a voice whispers in my ear and says, Paul, this is as far as you go. That's all you believe for yourself. You've had enough. You've had a good run. Don't be greedy. Don't be, you know, don't set yourself up for disappointment. Just park where you are. Just stay where you are. In fact, you know, as a pastor sometimes, and I'll tell you this, one of the reasons why a lot of pastors don't move into new things that God is doing in these last days is because the attitude is this. Things are going well. 
Don't mess it up. <laughs> Amen? You ever think that way? You know, keep it simple. And I got to tell you, there's a temptation sometimes in our walk with Christ. There's a temptation in ministry just to keep things simple. Why? Because if I can keep it simple, I can stay in control. No surprises, right? I like surprises. How many like surprises? <laughs> yeah, you got to. I don't know, Pastor. I'm not talking about anything radical. I'm just talking about an attitude. I'm going to invite the musicians before I get into trouble, if they want to join me. Friends, it's no different in your marriage relationship. You've got a choice. You can have a marriage contract but have no relationship because there's nothing new, right? You've got an attitude. I've got to figure it out. I've been doing this for a long time. I'm going to grab this mic. I think I'm kind of popping on you here. In a marriage relationship, we have the same option, don't we? And it's the same in our walk with God. We can come to a place where we say, well, I kind of got it all figured out. I'm comfortable where things are. But you know what? You never stay where you are. You always go backward. You drift. That's what Hebrews 2 and 1 says, right? We must pay even closer attention to the things that we first learned, lest we drift away. If you're not moving forward, we begin to drift away. God is always calling us to be pressing forward. But we have to make up our own mind whether or not we're going to be open enough for him to do in us what he wants to do. Or if we're going to settle down to a very stoic, unemotional, unimpassioned, unimpressed mindset that says, you know what, Pastor, I'm just not given to emotion. I know what I believe. My faith is solid as a rock. That's good. As long as you don't become one too. Right? Be flexible. Jesus is looking for flexible, shapeable people who would rather be continually moving in new things. Not for the sake of novelty, but because God's new things always refresh and restore and inspire us. Amen? That's what the Lord wants our faith to be. Fresh, inspiring, touching, healing, saving, restoring. That's what it means to walk with Jesus. That's what it means for Jesus to live within us.